394, chapters 33 and 34 of Sense and Sensibility. Book talk begins at... Welcome to Craftlit. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 394, Snark, Hunted, Found. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Survival Organs, handmade organs to love, throw, or cuddle, and Marchair Yarns, hand-dyed yarns just for you. You can find both at Etsy and our patrons at patreon.com slash craftlet. Visit the site and find out what kinds of rewards await you for supporting Craftlit. All of the supporters can be found in the sidebar of the show notes at craftlit.com. And remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go have a look. Well, hello. How are you? I hope you are well. I had a lovely time at the beach with my family and returned all refreshed and recharged and picked up my computer at the shop after it exploded. And things are much better now. It took much longer than I had anticipated to get it up and running, which is why the premium audio is all going to start dumping into your stream shortly. It was It was all locked into my computer, which died. So I was incredibly frustrated. But, be that as it may, I'm back now and ready for action. And speaking of action, have you been listening to John Skoll's radio soap opera in Manchester, England, on their local station? It's called Station Road. If you didn't listen to the opening, you can go to their SoundCloud site and listen to all the audio there. It's actually quite fun. And it's especially fun to get to your John, (laughs) because all of a sudden, here's this voice you know. And and I just get a kick out of that. Probably an unreasonable amount of kickitude from that, but but I don't mind. It's fun. You can find a link to that SoundCloud site in the show notes at craftlit.com slash 394. Along with John Scholes, I have another UK announcement for you. I will be speaking in London after the Yarn in the City yarn crawl through London. I will be hosted by the lovely ladies at Yarn in the City on October 19th, which I realized after the fact is my anniversary. I will be hosted by them to give my cognitive anchoring talk in London. I already have friends coming over from the other side of the channel, from Brussels, and I'm very hopeful that if you are in the UK, you can come into London that afternoon to hear the cognitive anchoring talk. I'll have my slides, I'll have my song and dance, I'll have the whole shebang. But it's the only time I'm going to be giving this talk. So, I I mean, unless, you know, somebody else wants to pull me back to England to do it. But I'm very excited and so, so grateful. These lovely ladies who host this yarn crawl and tons of other stuff, they're just marvelous and, um, and have found the most adorable venue for us to go to. It's an old theater. It's really cool looking. And information on tickets and times and address and all of that is linked to from the show notes. So go to craftlet.com slash 394 
and look for the Yarn in the City Cognitive Anchoring Talk announcement. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, wait a minute, cognitive what now? A little about a year and a half ago, I finally compiled all of the research that was out at the time that I could find on brain science, neuroscience, and what that scientific field had found out about our brains, specifically when it comes to doing automatic things like knitting or crocheting or I suppose even needle pointing or doodling, automatic things with our hands. There are so many different positive things that these activities do for us. And one of those things that I call it is cognitive anchoring. There are actually three things, and that's what the talk covers, is how you get these three incredible, and I'm not exaggerating, benefits from participating in some hand-related activity that you can do with automaticity. So that's the talk. It's actually, I don't know, now that I say it that way, it sounds really boring. <laughs> wow, you can learn about brain research and oh, isn't that great? Wow, brains, yay. But it really is fascinating. And of course, I try to be as entertaining as I can be. And I hope you can come. So that's really cool. And that's not the only thing on the tour. Um, there is something else, some news. Oh, yes. John and Maya. John Scholes, who read for us for Dracula and many books on the premium feed. And Maya Daguerre, who's doing such a lovely job reading Sense and Sensibility for us. They will be at different venues on our tour in Manchester and Northern England, York, that area, this fall. So if you're going, now you know you're going to get to meet and greet and shake hands and talk to these fabulous people who have done so much to entertain us and edify us and help us appreciate great literature. So along with cognitive anchoring and automatic things you can do with your hands and all that stuff, I have just entered into a barter arrangement where I agreed to spin some Samoya dog hair blended with Merino. Now I have the Merino on hand. It's already all prepared and lovely. And I've washed the dog hair and I have been looking for my hand cards everywhere and I can't find them. So I'm, I'm now stuck. I'm wondering, do any of you know if there is a mill somewhere in the vicinity of the United States, Northern Atlantic region, where I can send the hair and the wool and have them blend it for me? I know I'd heard of places like this, but honestly, I thought I'd ask you because I trust you more than the internet. I don't think that's an unreasonable position for me to take at all, but, but I'm hoping that one of you has some idea of a mill that I could go to that isn't hideously expensive. There is a lot of dog hair. It's actually a great bartering arrangement, but it occurred to me, duh, that spinning is one of those automatic things that you can do that helps you get into the zone where you can listen and remember better. So spinning, yay, not as portable. And actually, I don't know if spindle spinning would work as well because there's a lot of fiddling that you have to do on a pretty constant basis. Um, but wheel spinning, where you can get into that rhythm, definitely fits the cognitive anchoring model. So mills and wool. And maybe if you have, you know, the wherewithal, finding a mill run by Mr. Thornton, that would be awesome. <laughs> I know he was a cotton mill, fine, but really. Thornton, I would be happy to meet him and take pictures for you. 
of me with him. Don't tell Andrew. I have a book that may be right up your alley. It's one of those books that is either right up your alley or you are totally not going to be interested in this. But it is written by Scott McLeod, who I've talked about before, but not very recently on the podcast. Way back in the 90s, shortly after I worked for Disney, I had a friend who turned me on to Scott McLeod's first book called Understanding Comics. Now, I had read comics like everyone probably did at some point during their childhood, and they were cute, and that was great. Then I read this book. What Scott McLeod does is he, he goes through, it's kind of like the cognitive anchoring talk that I give, but for comic books, because he goes through kind of the brain science of how we see things, not see things like cones and rods in our eyes, but how we see things as humans, how we perceive shape and form and line and story in these formats. And and that goes some way to explain why comic books are structured the way they are and what that does for us as a reader and an understander of this branch of literature. And especially when you get into things like graphic novels. Well, Scott McCloud now has written a graphic novel that I think is marvelous about an artist who is a sculptor. The book goes places I never expected it to go. Beautiful and heartbreaking and lovely and completely and utterly unique. And it's, it is not a book for kids. It is, it is an adult graphic novel, adult in that the, the language and some of the themes are fairly adult. I, I would say 14, 15-year-olds can probably handle it as long as you're comfortable with the language. But I would, I would preview it first, just in case. It's definitely something that if your kids read it, you want to talk to them about it afterwards. But it's, yeah, it's beautiful. And so nice to see another book from Scott McCloud. I don't know, he's, he's a character in his Understanding Comics books. I think there are three of them, and I'll, I'll link to all of them from the show notes. But, but because he inserts himself as a, a character in the book, someone who's explaining this stuff to you, it's a little bit like a visual podcast, and you really feel like you get to know him. Gosh, I'm so excited. I'm really excited that he finished this. So yay, Scott McCloud, and yay you, because now you get to go read the book. <laughs> and it is called The Sculptor. Listener May sent in a note that they found some notes, handwritten notes of Charles Dickens, and that many of these notes actually solve the mystery of a number of unidentified Victorian authors. If you are interested in this, you will find a link in the show notes in the, the top part, the crafty part. I've separated our show notes by crafty talk and book talk, so you have a, a better chance of finding what you're looking for. And they are all in order of appearance from how these comments and links roll out to you during the course of the show. So this one will come after the link for the sculptor. And finally, before we move on to our book talk, I have a question and a shout out. And the question is this. Do you know anyone who lives on Christmas Island? I'm putting a link in the show notes to a map that shows you where Christmas Island is. If you know anyone who is there, please, please, please get them to subscribe to Craftlet. They don't have to listen. <laughs> It'd be great if they did. But there's a podcast that I listen to called The Feed 
put out by Libsyn, which is great because that way we get all of the updates and we know we know when iTunes breaks because we hear about it from the feed who hears about it from Apple. And yes, right now, iTunes is broken. It's not broken in a way that should be affecting you, but it is broken in a way that should affect how people are seeing podcasts on iTunes, which is annoying, but at least the feeds are still working. Anyway, it turns out that out of the entire world, the only specific location that doesn't have any, any podcast listeners in it is Christmas Island. There are people in the Antarctic who listen to podcasts. Christmas Island, out of all of these places, nobody listens. So if you know someone there and they subscribe, that information will show up on the feed. It'll ping them and they will announce Craftlet on their show as the source of the Christmas Island listener. So (laughs) it would just tickle me pink. I would be so excited. Christmas Island, who knew? And I promised a shout out. And the shout out is to our listener, Kayla, who I believe is turning or just turned 10 years old. Is that correct? I think so. I think you were nine. I think you're 10 now. So Kayla, my current youngest listener that I know of. Happy birthday. I hope you have a great year. 10 was a very good year for me. So I'm voting in that category. I think you're going to have a spectacular one. And now I have a listener voicemail for you commenting on one of the Axis of Awesome playlist videos that I mentioned last week. And don't forget, if you have a comment, a question, or anything you would like to share, you have the listener voicemail line, 206-350-1642. That's available to you. And if you don't want to pay long distance charges, you can go to craftlet.com and you will get either a little yellow pop-up or you will see a little black tab on the right-hand side of your screen that says send feedback, I think. And that is a link to a SpeakPipe page. If you have a microphone on your computer, you can use that, talk into it, record it, and it automatically gets sent to me. Yay! All right, here is our voicemail. And I will let this play us right in to Sense and Sensibility. Hi, Heather. You were talking about a instrument made of PVC pipes that were played by hitting them with a rubber paddle. If you have not checked it out yet, check out Blue Man Group. They have all sorts of really cool instruments made out of PVC pipe and sound like the kind that you're talking about. So that's something interesting to check out. Sense and sensibility. Well, in the it feels like millions of years since we talked about sense and sensibility, I have gotten a few voicemails, a few emails, things to share with you. So first, a very interesting email from Jeannie. Jeannie wrote and said, I'm a bit behind because I love Austin and I wanted to save up some episodes so that I could engross myself in the book. I'm catching up and I heard you talking about living rooms, drawing rooms, etc. I read a great book a few years ago that goes into the history of rooms and how their names came to be. I found it very interesting, and I wish that I had an index to make finding items quicker and easier. 
Even so, I highly recommend it. It is called At Home, A Short History of Private Life by Bill Bryson. Yay! I just have to interject. Yay! I love Bill Bryson. She goes on to say, thanks for the great show and congratulations on nine years. I've only been listening for about five or six. I love that she says only. But I've gone back to listen to some of your earlier books and episodes. While I admit there are some procasts that I enjoy, I started listening to podcasts about eight years ago, and my life is richer for it. Long live the podcast, Jeannie. And it's a timely comment about podcasts and procasts because Julie Davis at Forgotten Classics just wrote an opus on podcasts and procasts. And I think she did a lovely job of elaborating on, elucidating, clarifying some of the really, I think, lovely differences between procasts and podcasts. But also, she makes the point that love of one does not negate the love of the other. We both, and I'm sure all of us, love our procasts. There are many shows that are professionally done that we love. That's not, that's not the point at all. The point in the distinction is for clarification of how, where, and why the audio is made, who is making the audio, and how the audio connects to us. I mean, I, I lived in Brooklyn around the corner from Peter Sagal, and we used to hang out. But even with that, I don't have access to Peter the way that you have access to me. And I don't think listeners to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me know nearly as much about Peter or, or even feel necessarily as connected to Peter as you might to me after listening for the same amount of time. And that's just the nature of the beast, right? Because here I am alone in a room talking to you, and I know you talk back to me. Sometimes I can hear you. <laughs> but it's, it's just, it's a different thing. And I think Julie did such a lovely, lovely job of pointing out the difference and also making it clear how much we love our procasts as well. So it's not an either or. It's an everybody together, but clearly defined. <laughs> so thank you, Jeannie, for that. And, and our next email came from Sandy. And Sandy wrote in about Willoughby, who does not figure hugely in today's episodes. But that doesn't matter because Willoughby, I know, is on all of our minds from previous weeks. So here is what Sandy has to say. I think it is important not to overanalyze Willoughby. From his introduction, Miss Austin established him as a hunter slash predator, and none of his actions since then has contradicted that first scene. He is a jerk, even by Regency standards. <laughs> she continually reminds us of how bad he is by pitting his character against Colonel Brandon and Edward Ferris. I highly recommend the BBC version that was released at 2008 or somewhere close to that date. It is far truer to the book than the Emma Thompson version, as much as I love her. And the scenery in the 2008 version is breathtaking. There are also some familiar actors in that version, one of whom has a role or had a role in The Walking Dead. <laughs> I bet they were wearing a different costume in The Walking Dead. Also, I find myself respecting Lady Middleton more and more. She is perhaps London society personified. And the next comment is a spoiler. But we will be talking about Sandy's comments that are spoilers later. 
because I'm here. I'm here to protect you. That's what my job is. But today, 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 we have chapters 33 and 34. And whew, I am so glad to be back talking about this book. And soon, very, very soon, you will experience the joy that is the title of today's podcast. Because Jane Austen, in this week's chapters, is practically the inventor of snark. She has some of the most scathing social commentaries in these two chapters that we've heard yet. And she's had some zingers already. But this week, it just, it felt like, it felt like watching a, a Regency era stand-up comedian. She just doesn't stop. And so there's, there's really, it's going to be difficult the same way that Twelfth Night would have been difficult for Aaron Ziegler if all he had tried to do was explain the jokes. It's, it's very hard not to just want to read the entire chapter and grin at the microphone and go, eh? Eh? Wasn't that great? Eh? Because she's just so awesome. And my notes in the text, when, I, when I'm writing my notes to myself, I will put little notes next to interesting bits or difficult words or things like that. And the notes either say pre or post. Do I talk about this before the chapter or do I talk about this after the chapter? And almost all of them are post because I don't want to spoil anything for you. But there, there are a couple of words that we should know before, before going in so that we get the jokes because yes. The first term, especially if you are listening with a younger person, would be to go over the concept of juxtaposition. The idea that you put two things next to each other that are either not alike or at least contrasting purposefully, uh, usually, not always, but usually in order to create humor. It's like in, oh, what was it? Is it the movie Anti-Mame? Where she has the personal secretary who's kind of dowdy and looks like, oh, that character in The Incredibles, the cartoon. Edna, she looks a little bit like Edith Head did. But juxtaposing that character in Anti-Mame next to the blonde twit, <laughs> the son is going to marry the ups and downs girl, and having them stand next to each other, the juxtaposition of the tall blonde and the shorter dark-haired, bob-cut, kind of plain, dowdy woman. That's a juxtaposition that was done for humorous effect. Well, this chapter is going to be all about juxtaposition. But in a lot of the cases in today's chapters, it's juxtapositions of descriptive words along the lines of, uh, was it Mark Twain who said, teaching was placing false pearls before real swine, I think. I can't remember if it was Twain or not. Anyway, we can all go look it up in the show notes because by the time this is all done, I will have found them and put them in the show notes. So Austin has a lot of juxtapositions like that. She also uses a term that has gone out of fashion and that is puppy. In this case, puppy was used to describe kind of a dandy, a guy who dressed really well. But oh, oh, in, uh, in Bleak House, Mr. Turvydrop. He would be a puppy, somebody who, who dressed really well, but wasn't necessarily very bright or with it or 
anyone you necessarily wanted to talk to, he'd be a puppy. It was a term that you would use to make fun of someone, probably behind their back and not to their face. You will hear a casual reference to a seal, S-E-A-L. This is not the barking aquatic animal. This is, again, uh, one of the metal stamps that you would use to press down into melted wax to seal a letter. A jointure. We've talked about this before briefly. This is one of those monetary terms that Austin has been using in Sense and Sensibility to lend some seriousness to her social satire. A jointure was the amount of money, and it was fixed, it didn't change, that was paid annually to a widow. The principal, the total amount of money, she more often than not had no access to it. That money was there and saved that where upon her death, that money, the principal, would go to her children. Or if she and her husband didn't have any heirs, it would be to family members of her husband. Which means that Mrs. Sparrows, Edward's mom, seems to have access to all the money. Capital A, capital T, capital M. Either that or she was given an extensive jointure by her now-dead husband. We'll have to wait a little bit more to see more on that. You will again hear the term sister used to mean sister-in-law. And when it is used, it's towards the end of our first chapter. It may sound confusing because your brain will stop and go, wait a minute. We're talking to Eleanor. Marianne's her sister. This makes no sense. It's actually Fanny. Mrs. John Dashwood, who is being referred to at that point. So just keep in the back of your mind, sister, sister sister-in-law, interchangeable. Prepossessed, it's a word that we've run into before. And while prepossessed has morphed in its meanings, it's still at least partially the same, that a prepossession is an idea or a prejudice that you had before whatever the event is, meeting the person, seeing the thing, that kind of stuff. So if you are Prepossessed in this book, you have likely made a prejudgment, usually against someone else. You are predisposed to believe, at least in today's chapter, something not so nice about somebody else. Sedulous, S E D U L O U S L Y, sedulously, painstakingly, diligently. That would fill the blank for sedulously. And the social norms of the time required, I put that in air quotation marks, required that a first visit, an introductory visit for someone who is paying a call for the first time, that visit would be 15 minutes long, period, the end. So that made it comfortable because you can stand almost anything for 15 minutes and also relieved any pressure in case you didn't actually get along with the person who you were paying a call to. You know, just just a safety. Very, very wise thing to put into place for your social customs. Time limits. Now, I know we've talked about these before. Calling cards. This time I went and I found pictures of calling cards. So if you go to craftlit.com slash 394, you will see pictures of Regency era calling cards. Calling cards are the little cards. They're not quite as big as a business card today. The little cards that 
one would leave when one was paying one's visits in the morning that would be placed on a silver tray, a salver. And while you are out paying your visits, you'd be able to come home and review who tried to drop by and say hello to you. And then you could pay calls the next day. The amount of work that went into visiting is so shocking to me. <laughs> oh. But yes, that is the purpose of the calling card. The term bespoke is something I am seeing a lot more of. I know uh, Karen LePage, she does uh, One Girl Circus, gorgeous seamstress and clothing designer. She does bespoke couture. She does clothes that are made for you, which is so cool. Fireplace screens. Fireplace screens were handheld screens. And the one place that I can remember seeing them was in Bleak House, the Jillian Anderson and everybody else in the known universe version of, uh, of Bleak House from 2005. I will do my best to find the scene where she is, in fact, holding these fireplace screens. But they are small. They are flat. They are not like fans or anything like that, although they are the same size as... Um, if you've ever gotten flat fans, paper fans attached to like a tongue depressor at a carnival or a fair, they, they're about that same size. And, uh, and obviously these things could be painted and decorated and stuff like that. So that is what they're talking about when you hear about screens. There is a Greek word that will be used, a bitter philippic. Uh, this is a Greek term. It is a denunciation of someone. And it is used for humorous purpose in our chapters today. And that is pretty much all we got today before we listen to our chapter. So let's listen. Here we go. Chapters 33 and 34 of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, as read for us by the fantastic and soon to be met by people on the craft lit tour this fall Maya Daguerre Chapter 33 After some opposition Marianne yielded to her sister's entreaties and consented to go out with her and Mrs Jennings one morning for half an hour she expressly conditioned, however, for paying no visits and would do no more than accompanying them to Gray's in Sackville Street, where Eleanor was carrying on a negotiation for the exchange of a few old-fashioned jewels of her mother. When they stopped at the door, Mrs Jennings recollected that there was a lady on the other end of the street on whom she ought to call, and as she had no business at Gray's, it was resolved that while her young friends transacted theirs, she should pay her visit and return for them. On ascending the stairs, the Miss Dashwoods found so many people before them in the room that there was not a person at liberty to tend their orders, and they were obliged to wait. All that could be done was to sit down at the end of the counter which seemed to promise the quickest succession. One gentleman only was standing there, and it is probable that Eleanor was not without hope of exciting his politeness to a quicker dispatch, but the correctness of his eye and the delicacy of his taste proved to be beyond his politeness. 
He was giving orders for a toothpick case for himself, until its size, shape and ornaments were determined, all of which, after examining and debating for a quarter of an hour over every toothpick case in the shop, were finally arranged by his own inventive fancy, he had no leisure to bestow any other attention on the two ladies than what was comprised in three or four very broad stairs a kind of notice which served to imprint on Eleanor the remembrance of a person and face, of strong, natural, sterling insignificance, though adorned in the first style of fashion. Marianne was spared from the troublesome feelings of contempt and resentment on this impertinent examination of their features and on the puppyism of his manner in deciding on all the different horrors of the different toothpick cases presented to his inspection, by remaining unconscious of it all, for she was as well able to collect her thoughts within herself and to be as ignorant of what was passing around her in Mr Gray's shop as in her own bedroom. At last the affair was decided. The ivory, the gold and the pearls all received their appointment, and the gentleman, having named the last day on which his existence could be continued without the possession of the toothpick case, drew on his gloves with leisurely care, and bestowing another glance on the Miss Dashwoods, but such a one as seemed rather to demand than express admiration, walked off with a happy air of real conceit and affected indifference. Eleanor lost no time in bringing her business forward, and was on the point of concluding it, when another gentleman presented himself at her side. She turned her eyes towards his face and found him, with some surprise, to be her brother. Their affection and pleasure in meeting was just enough to make a very creditable appearance in Mr Gray's shop. John Dashwood was really far from being sorry to see his sisters again. It rather gave them satisfaction, and his inquiries after their mother were respectful and attentive. Eleanor found that he and Fanny had been in town for two days. "'I wish very much to call upon you yesterday,' said he, "'but it was impossible, for we were obliged to take Harry to see the wild beasts at Exeter Exchange, "'and we spent the rest of the day with Mrs Ferris. "'Harry was vastly pleased. "'This morning I had fully intended to call on you if I could possibly find a spare half-hour, "'but one has always so much to do on first coming to town.' I am come here to bespeak Fanny a seal, but tomorrow I think I shall certainly be able to call in Berkeley Street and be introduced to your friend Mrs Jennings. I understand she is a woman of very good fortune, and the Middletons too, you must introduce me to them. As my mother-in-law's relations, I shall be happy to show them every respect. They are excellent neighbours to you in the country, I understand. Excellent indeed. Their attention to our comfort, their friendliness in every particular is more than I can express.' "'I'm extremely glad to hear it. "'Upon my world, extremely glad indeed. "'But so it ought to be. "'They are people of large fortune. "'They are related to you, "'and every civility and accommodation "'that can serve to make your situation pleasant "'might reasonably be expected. "'And so you are most comfortably settled in your little cottage "'and want for nothing. "'Edward brought us a most charming account of the place, "'the most complete thing of its kind, he said, as ever was, "'and you all seem to enjoy it beyond anything. "'It was a great satisfaction to us to hear it, I assure you.' "'Eleanor did feel a little ashamed of her brother, "'and was not sorry to be spared the necessity of answering him "'by the arrival of Mrs Jennings' servant, "'who came to tell her that his mistress waited for them at the door.' Mr Dashwood attended them downstairs, was introduced to Mrs Jennings at the door of her carriage, and repeating his hope of being able to call on them the next day, took leave. His visit was duly paid. 
He came with a pretense at an apology from their sister-in-law for not coming too, but she was so much engaged with her mother that really she had no leisure for going anywhere. Mrs Jennings, however, assured him directly that she should not stand upon ceremony, for they were all cousins or something like it, and she should certainly wait on Mr John Dashwood very soon and bring her sisters to see her. His manners to them, though calm, were perfectly kind, to Mrs Jennings most attentively civil, and on Colonel Brandon's coming in soon after himself, he eyed him with a curiosity which seemed to say that he only wanted to know him to be rich to be equally civil to him. After staying with them half an hour, he asked Eleanor to walk with him to Conduit Street and introduce him to Sir John and Lady Middleton. The weather was remarkably fine and she readily consented. As soon as they were out of the house, his inquiries began. Who is Colonel Brandon? Is he a man of fortune? Yes, he has a very good property in Dorsetshire. I'm glad of it. He seems a most gentlemanlike man, and I think, Eleanor, I may congratulate you on the prospect of a very respectable establishment in life. Me, brother? What do you mean? He likes you. I observed him narrowly, and I'm convinced of it. What is the amount of his fortune? I believe about two thousand a year. Two thousand a year? And then working himself up into a pitch of enthusiastic generosity, he added... Eleanor, I wish with all my heart it were twice as much for your sake. Indeed, I believe you, replied Eleanor, but I'm very sure that Colonel Brandon has not the smallest wish of marrying me. You are mistaken, Eleanor, you are very much mistaken. A very little trouble on your side secures him. Perhaps just at present he may be undecided. The smallness of your fortune may make him hang back. His friends may all advise him against it, but some of those little attentions and encouragements which laid so easily give will fix him, in spite of himself. There can be no reason why you should not try for him. It is not to be supposed that any prior attachment on your side... In short, you know, as to an attachment of that kind, it's quite out of the question. The objections are insurmountable. You have too much sense not to see all that." Colonel Brandon must be the man, and no civility shall be wanting on my part to make him pleased with you and your family. It is a match that must give universal satisfaction. In short, it is the kind of thing that, lowering his voice to an important whisper, will be exceedingly welcome to all parties. Recollecting himself, however, he added, That is, I mean to say, your friends are truly anxious to see you well settled. Fanny particularly, for she has your interest very much at heart, I assure you. And her mother too. Mrs Ferris, a very good-natured woman, I'm sure it would give her great pleasure. She said as much the other day. Eleanor would not vouchsafe any answer. It would be something remarkable now, he continued. Something droll, if Fanny should have a brother and I a sister settling at the same time. And yet it is not very unlikely. Is Mr. Edward Ferris, said Eleanor, with resolution, going to be married? It is not actually settled, but there is such a thing in agitation. He has the most excellent mother. Mrs. Ferris, with the utmost liberality, will come forward and settle on him a thousand a year if the match takes place. The lady is the Honourable Miss Morton, only daughter of the late Lord Morton, with thirty thousand pounds, a very desirable connection on both sides and I have not a doubt of its taking place in time. A thousand a year is a great deal for a mother to give away, to make over forever. But Mrs Ferris had a noble spirit. To give you another instance of her liberality, 
the other day, as soon as we came into town, aware that money could not be very plenty with us just now, she put banknotes into Fanny's hand to the amount of two hundred pounds. And extremely acceptable it is, for we must live at great expense while we are here. He paused for her assent and compassion, and she forced herself to say, Your expenses both in town and country must certainly be considerable, but your income is a large one. Not so large, I dare say, as many people suppose. I do not mean to be complain, however, it is undoubtedly a comfortable one, and I hope will in time be better. The enclosure of Norland Common now carrying on is a most serious drain, and then I have made a little purchase within this half year. East Kingham Farm, you must remember the place where old Gibson used to live. The land was so very desirable for me in every respect, so immediately adjoining my own property that I felt it my duty to buy it. I could not have answered it to my conscience to let it fall into any other hands. A man must pay for his convenience, and it has cost me a vast deal of money. More than you think it really and intrinsically worth. Why, I hope not that. I might have sold it again the next day for more than I gave, but with regard to the purchase money, I may have been very unfortunate indeed, for the stocks were at that time so low that... If I had not happened to have the necessary sum in my banker's hands, I must have sold out to a very great loss. Eleanor could only smile. Other great and inevitable expense too we've had on first coming to Norland. Our respected father, as you well know, bequeathed all the Stanhill effects that remained at Norland, and very valuable they were too, to your mother. Far be it for me to repine at his doing so, he had an undoubted right to dispose of his own property as he chose, but in consequence of it we've been obliged to make large purchases of linen, china, etc., to supply the place what was taken away. You may guess, after all these expenses, how far we must be from being rich, and how acceptable Mrs. Ferris' kindness is. Certainly, said Eleanor, and assisted by her liberality, I hope you may yet live to be in easy circumstances. "'Another year or two may do much towards it,' he gravely replied. "'But, however, there is still a great deal to be done. "'There's not a stone laid of Fanny's greenhouse "'and nothing but the plan of a flower-garden marked out. "'Where is the greenhouse to be?' "'Upon a knoll behind the house. "'The old walnut-trees are all come down to make room for it. "'It will be a very fine object for many parts of the park. "'The flower-garden will slope down just before it "'and be exceedingly pretty.' We have cleared away all the old thorns that grew in patches over the brow. Eleanor kept her concern and her censure to herself and was very thankful that Marianne was not present to share the provocation. Having now said enough to make his poverty clear and to do away the necessity of buying a pair of earrings for each of his sisters as his next visit to Grey's, his thoughts took a cheerfuller turn and he began to congratulate Eleanor on having such a friend as Mrs Jennings. She seems a most valuable woman indeed. Her house, her style of living, all bespeak an exceedingly good income, and it is an acquaintance that has not only been of great use to you hitherto, but in the end may prove materially advantageous. Her inviting you to town is certainly a vast thing in your favour, and indeed it speaks altogether of so great a regard for you that, in all probability, when she dies you will not be forgotten. She must have a great deal to leave.' "'Nothing at all, I should rather suppose, for she has only her jointure, which will descend to her children. "'But it is not to be imagined that she lives up to her income. "'Few people of common prudence will do that, and whatever she saves she will be able to dispose of. "'And do you not think it more likely that she should leave it to her daughters than to us?' 
Her daughters are both exceedingly well married, and therefore I cannot perceive the necessity of her remembering them farther. Whereas in my opinion, by her taking so much notice of you, and treating you in this kind of way, she has given you a sort of claim on her future consideration, which a conscientious woman would not disregard. Nothing can be kinder than her behaviour, and she can hardly do all this without being aware of the expectation it raises. But she raises none in those most concerned. Indeed, brother, your anxiety for our welfare and prosperity carries you too far. Why, to be sure, said he, seeming to recollect himself. People have little, they're very little in their power. But, my dear Eleanor, what is the matter with Marianne? She looks very unwell, has lost her colour and has grown quite thin. Is she ill? She is not well. She has had a nervous complaint on her for several weeks. I'm sorry for that. At her time of life, anything of an illness destroys the bloom for ever. Hers has been a very short one. She was as handsome a girl last September as ever I saw, and as likely to attract the man. There was something in her style of beauty to please them particularly. I remember Fanny used to say that she would marry sooner and better than you did. Not but what she is exceedingly fond of you, but it so happened to strike her. She will be mistaken, however. I question whether Marianne now will marry a man worth more than five or six hundred a year at the utmost, and I am very much deceived if you do not do better. Dorsetshire! I know very little of Dorsetshire, but my dear Eleanor, I shall be exceedingly glad to know more of it, and I think I can answer for your having Fanny and myself amongst the earliest and best pleased of your visitors. Eleanor tried very seriously to convince him that there was no likelihood of her marrying Colonel Brandon, but it was an expectation of too much pleasure to himself to be relinquished, and he was really resolved on seeking an intimacy with that gentleman and promoting the marriage by every possible attention. He had just compunction enough for having done nothing for his sisters himself to be exceedingly anxious that everybody else should do a great deal, and an offer from Colonel Brandon or a legacy from Mrs Jennings was the easiest means of atoning for his own neglect. They were lucky enough to find Lady Middleton at home, and Sir John came in before their visit ended. Abundance of civilities passed on all sides. Sir John was ready to like anybody, and though Mr Dashwood did not seem to know much about horses, he soon set him down as a very good-natured fellow. Well, Lady Middleton saw enough of fashion in his appearance to think his acquaintance worth having, and Mr Dashwood went away delighted with both. "'I shall have a charming account to carry to Fanny,' said he as he walked back with his sister. "'Lady Middleton is really a most elegant woman.' Such a woman as I'm sure Fanny will be glad to know. And Mrs Jennings too, an exceedingly well-behaved woman, though not so elegant as her daughter. Your sister need not have any scruple even of visiting her, which, say the truth, has been very little the case, and very naturally, for we only knew that Mrs Jennings was the widow of a man who had got all his money in a low way, and Fanny and Mrs Ferris were both strongly prepossessed, that neither she nor her daughters were such kinds of woman as Fanny would likely to associate with. But now I can carry her a most satisfactory account of both. Chapter 34 Mrs. John Dashwood had so much confidence in her husband's judgment that she waited the very next day both on Mrs. Jennings and her daughter, and her confidence was rewarded by finding even the former, even the woman with whom her sisters were staying, by no means unworthy of her notice. And as for Lady Middleton, she found her one of the most charming women in the world. Lady Middleton was equally pleased with Mrs. Dashwood. 
There was a kind of cold-hearted selfishness on both sides which mutually attracted them, and they sympathised with each other in an insipid propriety of demeanour and a general want of understanding. The same manners, however, which recommended Mrs. John Dashwood to the good opinion of Lady Middleton, did not suit the fancy of Mrs. Jennings, and to her she appeared nothing more than a proud-looking woman of uncordial address, who met her husband's sisters without any affection, and almost without having anything to say to them. For the quarter of an hour bestowed on Berkeley Street, she sat at least seven minutes and a half in silence. Eleanor wanted very much to know, though she did not choose to ask, whether Edward was then in town, but nothing would have induced Fanny voluntarily to mention his name before her, till able to tell that his marriage with Miss Morton was resolved on, or till her husband's expectations on Colonel Brandon were answered, because she believed them still so very much attached to each other that they could not be too sedulously divided in word and deed on every occasion. The intelligence, however, which she would not give, soon flowed from another quarter. Lucy came very shortly to claim Eleanor's compassion on being unable to see Edward, though he had arrived in town with Mr and Mrs Dashwood. He dared not come to Bartlett's buildings for fear of detection, and though their mutual impatience to meet was not to be told, they could do nothing at present but write. Edward assured them himself of his being in town within a very short time, by twice calling in Berkeley Street. Twice was his card found on the table when they returned from their morning's engagements. Eleanor was pleased that he had called, and still more pleased that she had missed him. The Dashwoods were so prodigiously delighted with the Middletons that, though not much in the habit of giving anything, they determined to give them a dinner, and soon after their acquaintance began, invited them to dine in Harley Street, where they had taken a very good house for three months. Their sisters and Mrs Jennings were invited likewise, and John Dashwood was careful to secure Colonel Brandon, who, always glad to be where the Miss Dashwoods were, received his eager civilities with some surprise, but much more pleasure. They were to meet Mrs Ferris, but Eleanor could not learn whether her sons were to be of the party. The expectation of seeing her, however, was enough to make her interested in the engagement, for though she could now meet Edward's mother without that strong anxiety which had once promised to attend such an introduction, though she could now see her with perfect indifference as to her opinion of herself, her desire of being in company with Mrs Ferris, her curiosity to know what she was like, was lively as ever. The interest with which she thus anticipated the party was soon afterwards increased, more powerfully than pleasantly, by her hearing that the Miss Steeles were also to be at it. So well had they recommended themselves to Lady Middleton, so agreeable had their assiduities made them to her, that though Lucy was certainly not so elegant and her sister not even genteel, she was as ready as Sir John to ask them to spend a week or two in Conduit Street, and it happened to be particularly convenient to the Miss Steeles, as soon as the Dashwood's invitation was known, that their visit should begin a few days before the party took place. Their claims to the notice of Mrs John Dashwood, as the nieces of the gentleman who for many years had the care of her brother, might not have done much, however, towards procuring them seats at her table, but as Lady Middleton's guests they must be welcome, and Lucy, who had long wanted to be personally known to the family, to have a nearer view of their characters and her own difficulties, and to have an opportunity of endeavouring to please them, had seldom been happier in her life than she was on receiving Mrs John Dashwood's card. On Eleanor its effect was very different. 
she began immediately to determine that Edward, who lived with his mother, must be asked as his mother was to a party given by his sister, and to see him for the first time after all that had passed in the company of Lucy. She hardly knew how she could bear it. These apprehensions perhaps were not founded entirely on reason, and certainly not at all on truth. They were relieved, however, not by her own recollection, but by the good will of Lucy, who believed herself to be inflicting a severe disappointment when she told her that Edward certainly would not be in Harley Street on Tuesday, and even hoped to be carrying the pain still farther by persuading her that he was kept away by the extreme affection for herself, which he could not conceal when they were together. The important Tuesday came that was to introduce the two young ladies to this formidable mother-in-law. "'Pity me, dear Miss Dashwood,' said Lucy as they walked up the stairs together, for the Middletons arrived so directly after Mrs Jennings that they all followed the servant at the same time. "'There is nobody here but you that can feel for me. I declare I can hardly stand. Good gracious, in a moment I shall see the person that all my happiness depends on, that is to be my mother.' Eleanor could have given her immediate relief by suggesting the possibility of its being Miss Morton's mother rather than her own, who they were about to behold. But instead of doing that, she assured her, and with great sincerity, that she did pity her. To the utter amazement of Lucy, who, though really uncomfortable herself, hoped at least to be an object of irrepressible envy to Eleanor. Mrs Ferris was a little thin woman, upright even to formality in her figure and serious even to sourness in her aspect. Her complexion was sallow and her features small, without beauty and naturally without expression. But a lucky contraction of the brow had rescued her countenance from the disgrace of insipidity by giving it the strong character of pride and ill-nature. She was not a woman of many words, for unlike people in general, she proportioned them to the number of her ideas, and of the few syllables that did escape her, not one fell to the share of Miss Dashwood, whom she eyed with the spirited determination of disliking her at all events. Eleanor could not now be made unhappy by this behaviour. A few months ago it would have hurt her exceedingly, but it was not in Mrs Ferris' power to distress her by it now and the difference of her manners to the Miss Steeles, a difference which seemed purposely made to humble her more, only amused her. She could not but smile to see the graciousness of both mother and daughter towards the very person, for Lucy was particularly distinguished, whom of all the others, had they known as much as she did, they would have been most anxious to mortify, while she herself, who had comparatively no power to wound them, sat pointedly slighted by both. But while she smiled at the graciousness so misapplied, she could not reflect on the mean-spirited folly from which it sprung, nor observe the studied attentions with which the Miss Steeles courted its continuance, without thoroughly despising them all four. Lucy was all exultation on being so honourably distinguished, and Miss Steele wanted only to be teased about Dr Davis to be perfectly happy. The dinner was a grand one. The servants were numerous, and everything bespoke the mistress's inclination for show and the master's ability to support it. In spite of the improvements and additions which were making to the Norland estate, and in spite of its owner having once been within some thousand pounds of being obliged to sell out at a loss, nothing gave any symptom of that indigence which had he had tried to infer from it. No poverty of any kind, except of conversation, appeared, but there the deficiency was considerable. 
John Dashwood had not much to say for himself that was worth hearing, and his wife had still less. But there was no particular disgrace in this, for it was very much the case with the chief of their visitors, who almost laboured under one or other of these disqualifications for being agreeable. Want of sense, either natural or improved, want of elegance, want of spirits, or want of temper. When the ladies withdrew to the drawing-room after dinner, this poverty was particularly evident, for the gentlemen had supplied the discourse with some variety, the variety of politics, enclosing land and breaking horses, but then it was all over, and one subject only engaged the ladies until coffee came in, which was the comparative heights of Harry Dashwood and Lady Middleton's second son, William, who were nearly of the same age. Had both children been there, the affair might have been determined too easily by measuring them at once. But as Harry only was present, it was all conjectural assertion on both sides, and everybody had a right to be equally positive in their opinion, and to repeat it over and over again as often as they liked. The party stood thus. The two mothers, though each really convinced that her own son was the tallest, politely decided in favour of the other. The two grandmothers, with not less partiality but more sincerity, were equally earnest in support of their own descendant. Lucy, who was hardly less anxious to please one parent than the other, thought the boys were both remarkably tall for their age and could not conceive that there could be the smallest difference in the world between them. And Miss Steele, with yet greater address, gave it as fast as she could in favour of each. Eleanor, having once delivered her opinion on William's side, by which she offended Mrs Ferris and Fanny still more, did not see the necessity of enforcing it by any farther assertion. And Marianne, when called on for hers, offended them all by declaring that she had no opinion to give and she had never thought about it. Before her removing from Norland, Eleanor had painted a very pretty pair of screens for her sister-in-law, which being now just mounted and brought home, ornamented her present drawing-room. And these screens, catching the eye of John Dashwood on his following the other gentleman into the room, were officiously handed by him to Colonel Brandon for his admiration. "'These are done by my eldest sister,' said he. "'And you, a man of taste, will, I dare say, be pleased with them. "'I do not know whether you have ever happened to see any of her performances before, "'but she is in general reckoned to draw extremely well.' "'The colonel, though disclaiming all pretensions to connoisseurship, "'warmly admired the screens as he would have done anything painted by Miss Dashwood, "'and on the curiosity of the others being, of course, excited, "'they were handed round for general inspection.' Mrs. Ferris, not aware of their being Eleanor's work, particularly requested to look at them, and after they had received gratifying testimony of Lady Middleton's approbation, Fanny presented them to her mother, considerately informing her at the same time that they were done by Miss Dashwood. Hm, said Mrs. Ferris, very pretty, and without regarding them at all, returned them to her daughter. Perhaps Fanny thought for a moment that her mother had been quite rude enough, for, colouring a little, she immediately said, "'They are very pretty, ma'am, aren't they?' But then, again, the dread of having been too civil, too encouraging herself, probably came over her, for she presently added, "'Do not think there is something in Miss Morton's style of painting, ma'am. She does paint most delightfully. How beautiful her last landscape is done!' "'Beautifully, indeed, but she does everything well.' Marianne could not bear this. She was already greatly displeased with Mrs. Ferris, and such ill-timed praise of another at Eleanor's expense, though she had not any notion of what was principally meant by it, provoked her immediately to say with warmth, "'This is admiration of a very particular kind. What is Miss Morton to us? Who knows or cares for her? 
It is Eleanor, of whom we think can speak. And so saying, she took the screens out of her sister-in-law's hands to admire them herself, as they ought to be admired. Mrs Ferris looked extremely angry, and drawing herself up more stiffly than ever, pronounced in retort this bitter philippic. Miss Morton is Lord Morton's daughter. Fanny looked very angry too, and her husband was all in a fright at his sister's audacity. Eleanor was much more hurt by Marianne's warmth than she had been by what produced it, but Colonel Brandon's eyes, as they were fixed on Marianne, declared that he noticed only what was amiable in it, the affectionate heart which could not bear to see a sister slighted in the smallest point. Marianne's feelings did not stop here. The cold insolence of Mrs Ferris's general behaviour to her sister seemed to her to foretell such difficulties and distresses to Eleanor as her own wounded heart taught her to think of with horror, and urged by a strong impulse of affectionate sensibility, she moved after a moment to her sister's chair, and putting one arm round her neck and one cheek close to hers, said in a low but eager voice, "'Dear, dear Eleanor, don't mind them.' Don't let them make you unhappy. She could say no more. Her spirits were quite overcome, and hiding her face on Eleanor's shoulder, she burst into tears. Everybody's attention was called, and almost everybody was concerned. Colonel Brandon rose up and went to them without knowing what he did, and Mrs Jennings, with a very intelligent, Oh, poor dear, immediately gave her her salts, and Sir John felt so depressingly enraged against the author of this nervous distress that he instantly changed his seat to one close by Lucy Steele and gave her, in a whisper, a brief account of the whole shocking affair. In a few minutes, however, Marianne was recovered enough to put an end to the bustle and to sit down among the rest, though her spirits retained the impression of what had passed the whole evening. "'Poor Marianne,' said her brother to Colonel Brandon, in a low voice, as soon as he could secure his attention. "'She is not such good health as her sister. She is very nervous. She is not Eleanor's constitution, and one must allow that there has been something very trying to a young woman who has been a beauty in the loss of her personal attractions. You would not think it, perhaps, but Marianne was remarkably handsome a few months ago, quite as handsome as Eleanor. Now you see it is all gone.' Was that not the most awesome, evil, snarky couple of chapters ever? Oh, man. I was reading out sections to Andrew, just saying, listen, oh, listen, oh, how about this one? And he, you know, smiled patiently at me, but oh my gosh, I love these two chapters. And I, I want to go back. There are some things that I didn't mention before we listened because I didn't think it was that important, but that are kind of interesting, like the jewelry thing. The beginning of chapter 33, when Eleanor and Marianne go to the jewelry store, she says that she is exchanging their mother's pieces, several of their mother's pieces, and there's a reason for it. The jewelry styles during the 18th century, during the 1700s, was largely unchanged. But right around the turn of the century, during Jane Austen's lifetime, the styles changed actually quite a bit. And the cut of the stones, not quite so much as the way the metal was being wrought and how it looked, which makes perfect sense. Because right now, during the Regency period, you get kind of that neoclassical look, which is very different from before and after Jane Austen's time. 
So it was not uncommon at all to, when they say going in exchange, they were either exchanging older pieces that were actually of more financial value for newer pieces, which were probably not intrinsically worth as much, not as much metal, uh, precious metal, not as big uh, gemstone-wise. But the force of fashion was such that people were doing this all the time. It wasn't a big deal, and they certainly weren't going to a dodgy pawnbroker's place to put their mother's jewelry in hot. They were going to clearly a legitimate and very nice high-end store to exchange their mother's jewelry pieces for something more modern and fashionable. That was one of the things that actually confused me at the beginning because that was my assumption was that they were in more financial straits than we even knew about and that they needed the money. And I couldn't figure out why there was this really snooty guy with the toothpick case thing going on. And now it makes more sense. So I don't know if that was something that you were aware of or not, but I thought it was kind of cool. And just because I found it, as I was stumbling around on the web, I am linking in the show notes to an article about Jane Austen's turquoise ring and Kelly Clarkson. Yes, that's right. There is an actual connection between Kelly Clarkson, the American Idol winning rock star, (laughs) and Jane Austen. Who knew? Well, now you do. So go take a look at the article craftlit.com slash 394, and you'll see it in the book talk section towards the end, because the book talk section actually is the pre-chapter talk and the post-chapter talk. And did the toothpick holder thing not just crack you up? Holy smoke. Jane Austen's description of that man was so spectacular in its, in its snark and the razor-like specificity of all of his unpleasant characteristics. But it also occurred to me, listening to this thing about the toothpick case, the toothpick case, and I, I have pictures of some of these toothpick cases on the show notes. They were extraordinary, and, and sometimes even the toothpicks, they weren't necessarily wooden toothpicks. Sometimes it was a toothpick, and it was gold or silver or something. It, <laughs> Because if you can't pick your teeth with a gold toothpick, what is the point? I mean, really. I was dying. And it occurred to me that this is kind of like a chatelaine for a man. We were talking about the chatelaines that women wore, the accoutrement that you would want to have on you in case you needed scissors to cut thread or needle and thread to sew something or whatever. You had them hanging around your neck on a lovely little holder. Well, men need stuff too, right? You got to have something do business with, you know, to have your hands occupied with because cognitive anchoring. And what better way to show off when you're sitting around the table after a meal with the other men, smoking your cigar, drinking your port, and you take out your gorgeous, you won't believe how much money I spent on it, toothpick holder. Sure. I get it. I guess. I, I, I loved this section. I particularly liked her comment at the end of the chapter that this guy walked off with the happy air of real conceit and affected indifference. Just marvelous. God, she's so good. So uh, right after that, John Dashwood walks in and we find out that he hasn't 
visited his family because he had to take his son to the zoo. And he, he calls it the Exeter Exchange. This was a zoo. This was a, more like a menagerie at the time. It was a big deal. And one of the little tidbits that I found out, which I thought was hysterical, is that this place was actually open from 9 a.m. to 9 at night every day. So this idea that, oh, well, we had to take him to the zoo, as though it was going to be closed the next day or something, that there was some kind of time constraint on them, not even remotely, not even a little bit. It's why Jane Austen picked it, because everyone at the time would have gotten the joke that he's just being a poop, is what he is. (laughs) John Dashwood. Because really, what other term can we say he is? He's, uh, I want to say he's insufferable, but he's also rather amusing. As long as Fanny's not around, he's kind of amusing. Annoying, sure. But I thought Eleanor was particularly interesting in her interactions with him in these chapters. She seems snarkier than we've seen her before. It's almost like Jane Austen couldn't restrain herself, and her her own snark started to creep into Eleanor's personality. Because Eleanor, in her head and coming out her mouth, let out some spectacular lines, particularly the one to John Dashwood, after he gives her this long explanation about over several pages about how poor they are. He says, you must understand we're, we're far from rich. And she says, certainly. And assisted by her liberality, Mrs. Ferrers, I hope you may yet live to be in easy circumstances. She sounds so generous, and she is so full of snark. <laughs> because look at the circumstances you left us in, mister. All of the implications of that line and the, the layers of dripping sarcasm in there. And yet a line that could be said as sweetly and innocently as anything we've ever heard come out of Eleanor's mouth. So that if she was called on it, she could say, oh my goodness, oh no, I didn't, oh, I didn't mean that. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, 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 I, I really do hope that someday you're able to live easily. You pig. Love it. And just so the depth of John Dashwood's idiocy in regards to to money and talking about it to Eleanor is revealed. When he talks about Mrs. Ferrer's putting 200-pound notes into, or 200 pounds in notes, into his and Fanny's hands, 200 pounds is 40% of the Dashwood women's entire annual income. That's what they live off of. So Mrs. Mrs. Ferris just handed over 40% of their entire living on kind of a whim because they needed mad money. <laughs> they needed pocket change because they were kind of low on cash at that point. Oi. Now, while talking to John, Eleanor is asked a question about Marianne, and she said, yes, she's been suffering from a, a nervous condition. And I don't know about you, but to my modern ears, that sounded like kind of a, a cop-out as far as an answer, just kind of a vague, oh yeah, I don't want to talk about it response. And it turns out that it may have been more specific than I first assumed. And that's because prior to this era, when people talked about illness and health, they were talking about your humors being in or out of balance. And that goes back to the Greeks. You know, medicine kind of went up and down over the years, but 
as there became more and more surgeons and more and more ability to understand what was going on. And we, you know, we see the same thing happening in Frankenstein, that there is actually science behind the science that's growing in understanding at that point, especially when it comes to human physiology. There was a rise in the understanding of what nerves did and a rise in the belief that nerves were at heart responsible on some level for almost every ailment. There was even a doctor from Edinburgh who published and said that fully two-thirds of disease were nervous ailments. It is interesting to me that at a time when the, the rise of the cult of sensibility is focusing on feelings and things of that nature, that you simultaneously have the medical establishment focusing on feelings about nerves and things that allow us to feel. Feel sick, feel pain, feel things like that. And, haha, so we have this lovely little confluence, this moment of, of the meeting of the minds of science and art. And so saying that somebody had a nervous complaint, it could be that they had a migraine. It could also be that they had an ulcer. It might even be that they had gout. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not sure how far the range went for what could be called a nervous ailment or a nervous complaint, but it wasn't a cop-out or a lie or putting a pretty word on she's heartbroken. It was, it was a thing. And remember how I mentioned fireplace screens, the screens that women would hold by their face to keep their beeswax makeup from melting <laughs> in front of a, a hot, hot fire? Well, I tried to find the scene with Lady Deadlock and... As you know, Bleak House is long, and I decided that was a rabbit hole that I didn't need to go down. But I did find a whole bunch of fire screens on Pinterest, almost all of them mislabeled as fans. They're not fans. They're thicker than fans, and they would be far too heavy to use as a fan. In fact, I would be impressed if you could sit there holding that thing on the side of your face for long enough to do you much good before your arm got really tired. There are other fireplace screens as well, ones that we are probably more familiar with. They're the kind that you would put on the floor that also blocked the fireplace. I don't think you'd really want to use those screens to block the heat. That doesn't make any sense, right? From the front, but you could kind of use these fireplace screens to aim the heat that was coming out of the fireplace. And I, I think that while they're decorative, when there's no fire, you could put them in front of it. I think they were mostly used to kind of create, like those folding rice paper screens can kind of control the flow of air in a room. Same idea with the larger fireplace screens. However, in our chapter, the ones that we are talking about are clearly the handheld kind because they're being passed around. And I did find an example of a fireplace screen, a handheld fireplace screen that was painted. But there's more about that painting thing that I missed the first time through. When Lucy Steele... And Fanny and Mrs. Ferris decide to insult Eleanor further about painting. Fanny and Mrs. Ferris bring up Miss Morton, the girl who is evidently going to marry Edward. Lucy doesn't know about her. Eleanor does. So Eleanor has a pretty good idea of why they're bringing her up. But they're not just bringing her up to kind of poke at Eleanor. They bring up the fact that Miss Morton's painting, a landscape painting, was really quite good. And a landscape painting is a substantial piece of art. Eleanor painted a couple of fans. So, so they're not just bringing up Miss Morton, qua Miss Morton. They're bringing her up in a way to say, 
you aren't good enough at all. Even in your painting, you can't compete. So don't even try. Go home. Call it a day. Lovely people, I thought. Good to see that apples don't fall far from the tree and that Fanny learned her trade at the feet of a master. Well, as I said, I am not going to read you the entire chapter pointing out all of the parts that made me laugh. So I think we're pretty much done for today. Oh, and I needed to tell you, I have started a wiki. And you may be thinking to yourself, what? Why? And I'll tell you why. It's because over the last nine plus years, I've gotten emails often saying things like, you know, in the middle of Dracula, there was that book you talked about. I think it was by Tolkien, but I went and I looked for it on the show notes and I can't find it. Do you remember what it was? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't remember anything much past, you know, two weeks ago. So that's that's the end of my memory. And I do have things in the show notes, but part of what started happening is you've left really great comments. I've put up show notes. Sometimes the show notes were missing a link or sometimes the links are broken. And then there are also questions like the other one that I got this week saying, I need more podcasts. I'm caught up on you. I'm caught up on Chopbard. I'm caught up in Knit More Girls. I don't know what to do. I need more podcasts because I've got all these big drives coming or a new baby or, you know, fill in the blank. You don't have a blog role on your website at craftlit.com. Can you recommend podcasts to me? And I want to say yes, but I have to say no because I don't have enough time to listen to nearly as many podcasts as I want to. Most of my time, if I'm listening to anything, it's listening to podcasts that I have to use for work or listening to audiobooks that I'm vetting for use on Craftlet or on the premium feed. So I'm done. However, I know a lot of you listen to a lot of podcasts and have great taste. So that's one of the reasons for the wiki site, which is just like Wikipedia, but just about Craftlet, is a, a place for you to add information. It's pretty simple to do. They have lots of helper pages, and I'm actually linking to a little video that talks about how the non-Cody coding works, because you don't have to know HTML. You don't have to know anything like that to add information to a wiki, which is one of the reasons why I did this. You can upload pictures. You can upload information. You could create author pages if you wanted to. That's the other thing about the wiki is once I've set it up and the template pages are there, it's a free-for-all. Y'all can add whatever you want. And that includes outside links and outside information as well as a blog role. So information on the wiki is at the show notes, or you can go to craftlit.wikia.com and take a look at the wiki site. One of the reasons that I'm doing the wiki and uh, trying to get stuff better organized is because I'm doing a pretty massive overhaul on the website. Most of it is behind the scenes. You won't notice anything. But some of it is trying to get the information to the people who need the information. And that's tricky with Craftlet because we don't have demographics. We have listeners. And y'all don't fit any category. So <laughs> it makes it tricky to get 
to you the things you need in order to be able to listen to the books. However, over the next month, it should be improving, things should be easier to find, and stuff that can't be found on the Craftlet show notes will be over in the wiki. That's my goal. That's my dream. That's my hope. Some links are still sending you to craftingalife.com craftlet. I'm not updating that site anymore. I'm over on craftlet.com. I am putting in redirects so that if you use an old link, it should send you to the new site. And if something goes wonky, email me. You can email me at heather at craftlit.com and I'll get it fixed for you and we'll figure it out. Now, as far as having a blog roll of podcasts that I listen to, you know, that's not happening. However, there are two podcasts that I've come across. I haven't listened yet, but one comes highly recommended by Julie and the other comes highly recommended by Elsie Escobar, who is the podcaster on Libsyn's The Feed and the She Podcasts podcast. And both of these are uh, fiction in the style of Welcome to Night Vale, in that they're, they're not reporting anything. It's someone writing fiction and people acting the fiction out. Of course, there's also Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, if you like scary stuff that I do narration for. But these other two are more straightforward fiction. So there are links to those in the show notes for you as well. Don't forget, we have groups on Facebook that you can join. Lots of interesting chat over there and a group on Ravelry that if you are a knitter or crocheter, you can join. Even if you're not, Aaron Ziegler's over there and he doesn't knit. You can follow us on Twitter. And if you're up to it, subscribe at iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Every time you link, like, follow, or subscribe, you help the show. And also, patreon.com slash craftlit is the easiest place to go to get information and show how much you support independent podcasting and classic literature. All right, that's it for me. I am out of here. Have a great day. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. If you like getting free audiobooks with benefits every week, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash craftlet. There are rewards waiting for you beyond, you know, the free podcast. You can also subscribe to our premium streaming audio by tapping the red lock when you are looking at the app or at the show notes at craftlet.lipson.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for a premium download subscription by following the links in the right-hand sidebar at craftlet.com. And if it's easier for you, you can always subscribe and review at iTunes and at Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook, support us at Patreon, and come with us on tour. For nine years, Craftlet has been kept going by the support of you, the listener. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.